welcome to another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation. We're your hosts, Melanie Sona and Erin Liebka. And today we are really excited to be joined by Cheryl Williams. She is a seasoned executive with more than 20 years of public policy and operations experience in the federal government and nonprofit sector. Cheryl Williams serves as the executive director of the National Association for State Community Services Programs, or NASCAPs. Cheryl previously served as vice president of the Women's Congressional Policy Institute, or WCPI, where she provided strategic leadership to bring together women policymakers and trusted partners to advance issues important to women and girls. And prior to this, Cheryl served as an associate director of government affairs for the United Negro College Fund, where she advocated on behalf of historically black colleges and universities to increase access to higher education for students with low incomes. Further, as senior legislative assistant to Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, she was a trusted advisor on voting rights, women's health, labor and employment, education and appropriations, among other issues. A native Washingtonian, Williams serves on the boards of Every Home DC and the CKA Save Project. She also is a longtime volunteer with Food and Friends and Sister Mentors. Thank you so much for being with us today, Cheryl. Well, thanks so much for having me and inviting me to, to be on. I'm excited to be here. And as you can see, I mean, you're, you've done everything. You've done it all. You've been in all of these different spaces. And so we are really excited to hear about your experience, learn from your expertise, learn what you're, you know, using your skills now to do, uh, to do good in these communities. And for our listeners, we actually had the pleasure of first encountering Cheryl at a meeting that Melanie and I were presenting at. And we heard you know, her talk about some of her background and the work that she's doing in her current role as executive director. And instantly, we were very curious. We knew we wanted to ask some questions, learn more about what she does. So we are very excited and thrilled to be able to learn from such an expert, someone who's very present in this policy space. Yes, most definitely. Well, thank you. Yes. And as Erin said, um, you know, you've had such an extensive background in many different aspects of policy and also um, involving uh, people and communities that typically aren't represented in the policy sector, which is something we would really love to get more information about from you later on. Um, before we get into all of the details, um, we would really appreciate if you could just briefly describe, um, you know, what's involved in your current role at um, the National Association for State Community Service Programs, um, NASCAST for short, um, and how the previous positions you've held have um, led you to this role? That's a great question um, because I think, well, let me start by saying, you know, NASCAPS is, we're the only national association that advocates uh, for and and enhances the role of states um, to administer the Community Services Block Grant. CSBG, and Weatherization Assistance Programs, what we call WAP. 
And um, I, I like to think of the our role and as we represent the state of administrators when we do the, the work that we do, states are sort of the linchpin between the federal government and the state associations and the community um, action agencies that are actually on the ground doing the work, providing the daily services, you know, doing the food banks, doing the diaper distributions, um, weatherizing homes and things like that. The, the funds come from the federal government and the state offices actually help administer those dollars. And so what we are what we do at NASCAPS is, is try to provide that technical support to states so that they are able to better do the jobs that they that they do. Um, we're able to give them all kinds of training that help them maximize and leverage their resources so that they are better able to serve uh, the the state associations and the the which are their you know the state associations and the local agency there are their are their grantees. So the, in terms of their relationship to the federal government, they're the sort of sub grantees. Um, and so we want to provide that kind of technical support and resource support to strengthen the network all the way from the federal government all the way down to the actual direct services. And the, what drew me to this role is that I had been working in public policy for, as you mentioned, more than 20 years, dare I say. <laughs> and um you know, it's one one of the things that's been a through line of my career has been trying to figure out ways that you can expand access to these programs, to services for communities that are underrepresented, to individuals that are underrepresented, uh, folks who are not at the public policy making tables. And I really felt like, you know, coming to NASCAPS was a perfect opportunity to meld that advocacy um, passion of mine with, uh, you know, the nonprofit work that I had been doing. I fell in love with nonprofit work. Um, and, um, you know, it's just been something that is it, it kind of, I don't know, it's been a motivating thing for me, really. Um, yeah. And if you had asked me 20 years ago, um, if that's what I would be doing, I would never have known that. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, it's it's my passion yeah. and it's where I've fallen in love. So that's awesome. I think that's the interesting thing about a lot of the guests that we've interviewed is, you know, your career trajectory, you have these plans for it and you think you know what you're wanting to do. And then it's really just about what you actually find interesting. And that's kind of where you where you end up in the uh, spectrum. So in your role as the executive director as NASCAP, could you talk a little bit more about some of the key initiatives or programs that your organization is involved with that, you know, directly address some of the needs of the community? Sure. So on the CSBG side, um, you know, one of the things that is really important, first of all, it's really, it's important. And I think people don't understand how CSBG actually works, Community Services Block Grant. It's a lot of people think it's a program, but it's actually a funding stream that comes from the federal government that goes to states and allows, it is specifically designed to allow states that flexibility um, to direct programs, target programs exactly where they need to go. Um, and so what we do on the CSBG, and the same is true on the weatherization side or the WAP side, is that, um, like I said, we're helping steer 
and provide guidance to the states so that they can administer those dollars more, most effectively. One of the things that we're looking at is for people who, um, and this is one of the things that I think is is really true and the pandemic has exposed this. You have a lot of folks who were, um, who thought that they were, well, they are middle class, right? And then the pandemic showed that even folks who were in the middle class ended up, you know, waiting in long lines at the food bank, um, needing kinds of services. And one of the things that we're noticing from a policy standpoint is that as people, you know, what states did to kind of help during the, the pandemic is that they expanded the eligibility of, you know, from 125% of the federal poverty level to 200%. So that allowed states uh, to and state uh, associations to be able to help more people who were actually really, you know, desperately in need. So we want to make that permanent, um, authorize that in a permanent way. Right now, it's, you know, Congress is doing it. Um, you know, they've been doing it through the appropriations process, the federal appropriations process, which is, a you know, a discretionary process. Every year it comes up and, you know, Congress has to pass those bills every single year. So we're hoping that they don't do this, but they could very, you know, decide, well, we're going to go back down to take that uh, eligibility away and right. take it back to 125%. So that's one of the things that we're advocating for and want some of the policies that we're advocating for. Um, one of the, uh, also on the CSBG side, I would say that um, we're looking at you know when you have people who are recipients of the, these programs that CSBG funds, they start doing better, and that's what we want, right? And as people start doing better, a lot of times they get penalized because then they are not then eligible for some of the other services. And so, which is called the, the poverty cliff, right? We don't want people to fall off that cliff. We want to encourage them to actually take advantage of these services and take advantage of all the benefits that CSBG can provide, job training, uh, you know, food assistance, diaper assistance, whatever the case may be, without having to worry about that they're going to have TANF taken away from them simply because they've gotten a better job through, you know, a CSBG funded uh, uh, program. So we look at kind of policies in that regard at the higher level to try and make sure that they're benefiting the, the actual communities and the individuals who are on the ground uh, being served. And I think that's one of the, the critical things that we try to help our stakeholders do um, on the on the more um, I don't know, I don't want to say personal side, but more, I guess, internal or administrative side. Um, it's making sure that our stakeholder vo voices are being heard. I think a lot of times people understand what community action does, uh, what the state associations do. And the state associations, just to, to be clear, are the state entities that represent the local action agencies, I see. if that makes sense. Sure. So, um, and that's, and they're a huge part of that network. They're, they're critical partners in all of this work. So a lot of people intuitively know what community action agencies do because they're the ones actually providing direct services. And therefore you understand what the state associations do because they represent those local agencies. But a lot of people don't understand what the state offices do. 
and how critical their role is in this in policy development and act not just policy development, but actually making sure that those services can be provided. And so part of my job and part of what we want to make sure that we're doing here at NASCAPS is telling that story of the, of the state offices. It's not, you know, administrative stuff is not sexy. (laughs) No one wants to hear about like technical, you know, training and technical assistance. And yet without it, you're not the, you know, you're not able to carry forth and make sure that those dollars are being, you know, spent you know, with accountability right. that, that the programs are being good stewards of, of those dollars. So that's a long way to answer your question. <laughs> Not at all. No, I think, I think you mentioned a couple of things that were really interesting to me and frustrating the, you know, this idea that people will get so much aid and they'll start to do better. And then just when they're starting to do better, they get kicked off all of these, these programs that were helping them in the first place. And I've definitely, I've worked with a lot of patients and people who have services like Medicaid and TAMF, and they're very, very rightfully so worried about those things, doing improving their lives because without those benefits, they would kind of fall back into some of those older things. Um, I was also wondering if you could talk a little bit about the weatherization program as well. I know that that's in addition to those um, block grants that you guys do, because that's also pretty, I think, a pretty neat initiative. It's it's actually really incredible as well because you have their homes and weatherization is really focused on certainly low income individuals and families, um, but particularly families like where their children, um, low income low income families with children, uh, elderly, and and folks who may be disabled, and. What a lot of people don't realize is that, like, you can have leaks coming in through, you know, the windows or what have you. Right. Um, your refrigerator may be out of date. Your heating systems may be out of date. And those things cost, those leaks, those different, those inefficiencies actually have costs. And because low-income families spend a large, much larger percentage of their income on energy assistance, or energy on energy in general, rather um, than you know moderate or higher income folks, that costs a lot. So weatherization, those dollars add up. Weatherization can come in and seal the windows, seal the you know the cracks in the siding or whatever it may be. Can replace ductwork. Can replace you know your refrigerator so that you can end up having almost $500, you know, on average savings to a low-income family per year, which is huge when you are on a limited, you know, amount of income. And so what they're actually doing is going into neighborhoods and changing out, you know, uh, old light bulbs and replacing them with more energy-efficient light bulbs. Things like that uh, are making huge differences for a lot of low-income families and, and at the same time helping promote energy efficiency. Um, and then you have, but one of the things, one of the challenges I think that you find is that when you go out to communities where there's the greatest need, you also run into homes that have the greatest need of repair. Yeah, so you can't weatherize a home if there's a hole in the roof right? or there are holes in the floor. And you literally have people um, in, you know, really 
terrible situations where that is literally the truth. They have a tarp on their on their roof. And so one of the things that we have to do, it's it's a weatherization readiness funds are fantastic funds, which, you know, allow the roof to be repaired, the floor to be repaired, whatever that need is, those things can happen. And then you can come in and actually do the weatherization of the home. So there are two separate problems, two separate processes, rather. The problem with that is that the backlog for weatherization readiness for for folks to actually get out to do the do that work is incredibly long, right? It's you know we have a lot of homes, particularly older homes, um, in communities that need that are vulnerable communities. Um, they have to wait for weatherization readiness to take place before they can get the weatherization piece, uh, um, you know, off the ground and, and going. So those are one of the things that we're looking at, uh, two of the things I should say that we're looking at, but trying to make sure that um, we can use those dollars effectively um, and make sure that we're also uh, eliminating or, or reducing the backlog for weatherization readiness. Yes, thank you for those insights, Cheryl. Um, it's really like it's really encouraging to hear that NASCAP is involved in initiatives like this because I I, I think typically it's easy to assume like if um, you know the state is giving or allocating funding to these you know um, to people who are in need of the assistance you know to whether it be pay electric bills or you know energy costs for instance, but if the really the underlying issue like you know the fact that your windows aren't you know, haven't been uh, sealed as of recently or haven't been um, kept up to date, you know, and then that's also like increasing the cost for energy, then it's just like a non-ending problem. So um, that is really, that's great to hear that NASCAP is involved um, in things like that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners probably did not know that um, an organization like this existed. Um, and it makes a lot of sense that one should uh, exist to kind of act as like a liaison between the state and then the communities um, that are in need and to inform what the state is doing with the money. Um, so could you maybe give a little bit more detail into like, what are the relationships um, NASCAP the organizations forming with maybe like, you know, the, the smaller community organizations or community leaders? Like, what is that? exchange look like? And then how do you then take that information you're getting directly from the community then to the state to know how to allocate funds? Mm, that's a, it's a great question. Um, because what we do, we can't do this work alone, right? We only, like I said, we represent the states, but there is the the network, what we call the network of, you know, the state associations and the, and the community action agencies. And so a lot of times you, we have direct relationships with, you know, the, the, um, with the partnership, the, the national community action partnership, where they have direct relationships with the agencies and the, and the, and the, the local agencies and the state associations. And so a lot of times at our conferences, we will hear directly from folks who are there who are telling us these are the issues that we're seeing on the ground. So it's it's a little bit different because Head Start is a different program from, from CSBG, but a lot of community action agencies actually run Head Start programs. So you have a lot of overlap 
there. And one of the things that we hear, for example, like when you talk about things that we're hearing on the ground and how we connect with them, is that we hear that there are issues with staffing at Head Start um, uh, uh, providers. So they're not able, they're trying to figure out how they can increase do they, do they increase the number of kids that they enroll or do they increase the amount of money that they pay the teachers? You know, those are, it's not, it's a zero sum type of thing. And so we're able to take some of those concerns, even though Head Start is not technically one of the programs that we, we represent, but because we can hear that along, you know, throughout the, the community, that's something that we can, we can share with our partners at the federal level. So a lot of it has to to do with our partnerships and making sure that we are collaborating with the national partners so that we can also be a voice in support of the programs on the ground. Um, and I think a lot of our collaboration comes in, in that face, we, in that regard, rather like at the, at the conference level, sometimes at the training level. Uh, we don't provide training directly to uh, local agencies, but when we provide training to the states, the local agencies benefit from that. The sub-grantees benefit from that. Um, and we hear a lot of times where um, we can we know the impact of it because the local agencies and the, the sub-grantees can, will say to us, you know, we really appreciated your intervention here because that really helped the state turn this around yeah. or turn whatever that was around. Um, so a lot of it is really just building those relationships and building you making sure that we have collaboration up through throughout the network entirely. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. And yeah, collaboration, collaboration, collaboration seems to be the reoccurring theme we hear amongst all the successful experts and um, ad uh, advocates that we've been talking to. So um, yeah, no, that's really awesome to hear. Um, and it's kind of going off of that. I'm also curious to know from your perspective, you know, how does community empowerment and engagement um, play a role in the success of these state level programs and um, how has NASCASP um, been able to support and encourage, um, you know, these community building efforts? You know, it's, that's a great question. Um, I think that a couple of things from my, my belief has always been, whether it's been prior to NASCAP and still at NASCAP now, is that um, having the voices of people with lived experience is absolutely critical. Um, and so I am hoping, and, and one of the things that I want to make sure that we're doing is making sure that when we are at the table, we are including and amplifying the voices of people with lived experience, people who, who have benefited from CSBG programs, people who have benefited from weatherization programs. Um, and I think that um, part of what has to happen too, in terms of empowering communities, I'm a big believer that you have to talk to everybody, you know, right? And I say this because, you know, someone is, who's been in this policy space and worked on Capitol Hill and worked in advocacy, I've literally seen, we know what partisanship looks like right now and how, you know, I don't know what the word is, but <laughs> we know what it looks like. I remember a time when it wasn't nearly that that bad, um, and there was a time when you could talk across the aisle to to people, and um, 
I'm a firm believer that we have to be able to do that. We have to be intentional about doing that. But the thing is, for and this is what's really important, I think, particularly for communities that have not had a seat at the table, is that you have to equip them to be able to bring their lived experience and match it with the, how you frame the argument. I think there is nothing better than, and I remember this from, you know, working for Congresswoman Norton when con- when constituents would come in and talk and, and, you know, even if they were upset, there's nothing better than having that direct conversation, that direct face-to-face engagement. Um, but the most effective uh, advocates, activists were ones who could, un- who understood how to frame the message, how to boil it down into maybe one or two, you know, talking points so that they could really hit, you know, make the point. So I think it has to be engagement. It has to be education. And it just has to be persistence, Um, particularly now, (laughs) you know, making sure that we continue to talk across the aisle. And I think that has been the benefit of, of working in a bipartisan way um, for so many years. I mean, personally, I am a fairly progressive liberal person, but I know from experience that the best policies, the most sustainable, most sustainable and meaningful policies have been developed with, you know, with bipartisanship. And I think that's always going to be true. And when everybody has, you know, a dog in the hunt, then, then that's when you know, everyone has um, something when policy is, is, is best made to be, that's my personal belief. And so I've always tried to strive, tried, tried to strive for that. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, <laughs> but um, I think when it comes down to, you know, empowering communities, it's really about getting people to share their stories. That's the most critical thing. You know, we have to remember that elected officials are elected officials, which means that they report to us. They are accountable to us. Mm -hmm. And the only way that this works is that we hold them accountable, right? And that means that we have to engage people to actually have those conversations. But we also have to remember that we have to create safe spaces for those conversations to happen. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of times when you may have a Republican and you may have a Democrat who have a similar idea and they want to talk to each other. And yet the political process, the campaign process will say, oh, no, they're t- they're compromising too much. You shouldn't be talking to that person and you shouldn't be talking to, you know, across the aisle. And then someone wants to run against them in a primary because they're being too cooperative. I've literally seen that happen on Capitol Hill. And so we have to redefine what collaboration looks like and make that possible. In order to make that possible, you have to kind of create those safe spaces for it to happen. So, yeah. I think, let me, I want to highlight a couple of things that you've just said, because I think it's really critical on a number of levels. I think the first thing, you know, hearing real people's stories, because we all live in our own little bubble, 
And especially mm-hmm. if you're an elected official, you may not be exposed to everyone that you're representing and their personal experiences. But I think it's also really important from the perspective of being a community member who is trying to share their personal story to have proper training, to feel comfortable, to have a safe space to share um, their experiences. And that's truly how I from my perspective, I feel like that is how you gain empathy. And empathy is maybe the first step towards trying to accomplish something. Because if you can kind of understand how someone might feel or how, how what someone went through maybe shaped them, it makes a big difference on the cooperation front. And I think the other thing, you know, this idea of bipartisanship, which is something that you're clearly very skilled at. And this is something Melanie and I definitely wanted to delve in, you know, a little Mm. bit deeper with you. It seems to me that party lines are a huge roadblock to achieving a lot of the progress that we want to see in all fronts, but especially on the neighborhood front. And so can you, I mean, I know you have a lot of experience in this space, but what are, can you name any like specific skills or strategies or things that you've done to gain bipartisan support and facilitate people's understandings of these issues and the role that some of the programs that you've worked with and the role that other uh, programs play in making our communities healthier, making healthier, making these constituents, um, you know, lives better. I think it starts with the word that you use, which was empathy. Empathy. At the at the end of the day, we all have particular interests. Ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the people I've ever engaged with want better communities. They want people better, you know, better health. They want people to be healthy. They want kid, their kids to, you know, be in safe neighborhoods. They want those things, right? Now they have a different way maybe of how you go about achieving that. But if you both, if you know, and you believe that you both want the same thing, that's starting point number one, right? You start there. Um, I have, she's retired now, a colleague and and a mentor by the name of Judy Schneider, who worked at Congressional Research Service for for a number of years. And I mean, she literally, literally and figuratively wrote the book on on like the congressional process and what have you. She's an amazing, just a phenomenal um, um, person and, and mentor. But one of the things that she would always talk about is the three Ps, policy, politics, and process, and that you have to have all three in equal measure to move the needle forward. And politics, which she was talking about, and I'll kind of explain all those, politics is not necessarily Republican-Democrat politics. Sometimes it's regional politics. Sometimes it's just, you know, who sits on which committee and what, whatever, whatever it may be. The policy is whatever it is that you're advocating for. Let's say um, uh, uh, increased uh, dollars for TANF, right? But the process, you have to understand how legislation actually moves through Congress. And once you have those three things in measure, equal measure, then you can move the needle. But here's the thing about the politics part, and I want to focus in on that. Every interest is local. And those local interests can shift at any time, which means that there are no permanent 
enemies and there are no permanent friends, right? And now that's not necessarily a negative or a positive. It just is a fact of, of how the process works. And so that means that you can and should perhaps be willing to talk to anybody at any time on the things that matter to you. And ultimately, if you are willing to do that and have that sense of empathy about that, there's always something, one little nugget of something that you can that you can dig into, and that's where you plant your flag. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. Um, when I was working with Congresswoman Norton, um, I, I'm not sure how how familiar you are with DC politics, um, but DC has has its own local government locally elected government but it's it's bills uh its legislation has to go through congressional approval so literally every single bill that's passed you know DC has its own budget that it passes but that has to go through the appropriations process the federal appropriations process which means that if you want to effect change, you have to have congressional involvement in it, which is sort of ridiculous when you think about it because yeah. you have a lot of conversation about local control and it's like, um, anyway, yeah. one of the things she wanted to fix and wanted to address was the problems, there were a lot of problems with the DC family court system. Just a, just a whole host of things that, you know, had been in the news and just issues with the family court system. And she knew that she needed, um, and the Republicans were in control of the House at the time. And so she knew she was going to have to have a Republican to help carry this bill and who was going to see DC as a as a as its own entity with its own um, which is which was very hard to do anyway very long story short she ended up working with a congressman by the name of Tom Delay and I don't know if you are familiar with with Tom Delay at the time he was the majority whip and he had the nickname of the hammer because he was um, pretty stern with trying to get, you know, Republican votes, conservative member from Texas. And she zeroed in on him. Why? Because his wife worked as a CASA, a court appointed uh, um, special, oh my gosh, I can't remember what CASA, it's a court appointed um, someone who helps represent children and represent the interest of children. Mm -hmm. Um, in family courts, it'll come. It's, Casa will come to me in a second. Special advocate, I think that's what it is. Court-appointed special advocate, and she had been doing it for years. And so, with her experience, and therefore his experience in the family court, and I forgot how we figured that out. She went to him and proposed that they work together with the city on this D.C. family court bill. Now you have a very progressive member of the of the you know Democratic caucus on this side within Eleanor Holmes Norton, and a very conservative member of the Republican caucus on the on the other side, and Tom Delay, and the two of them got not only got this bill written but passed into law. Wow. And that only happens because, A, you're willing to sit and listen and understand where the interests are, where the interests lie, and that you're willing to work across the aisle and that you're willing to take those interests and that's what you run with. And that's the example that I use to show how bipartisanship starts with empathy, starts with listening, starts with understanding where people are coming from. And if you can strip away the noise and it's very very hard to do especially now that is i think that's the bigger challenge is trying to strip away all the noise and really get down to the essence of what it is that people really want 
that's where you find common ground and that's where you plant your flag. Wow. Yeah, that's a huge, so many important lessons and ideas to think about, especially for our generation, you know, going forward as more of us um, get involved in politics. And in addition to bipartisanship, you've um, mentioned, you know, bringing these community members to the table, making sure that people are involved in this public policy space. And you made some interesting comments about some like the ironies of DC and how politics and all of this stuff are not accessible to the people who policy affects. And so how um, have you found it's like, what are effective ways and to not only make uh, policy and politics more accessible, but also encourage people to engage in this space so that ultimately the policies that come out of our government at whatever level are serving the people who are actually living in these areas? I think a lot of it starts with exposure. Um, so we had, when I was at Women's Congressional Policy Institute, we had a program called Take Our Daughters to, to Congress Day. And we had um, girls who were from Girls Inc. and also Girl Scouts in the in the earlier days, from as young as like eight years old all the way up to 18. And they would come to Congress and they would shadow a woman member of Congress. And this was on the same day that they would do like Take Your Daughters and Sons to Work Day. Awesome. Um, and they would shadow these women members of Congress. And so, you know, in the morning, you know, you can imagine that they're, they're kids, right? And they come in and they're quiet. Some of them are shy. Some of them are teenagers and they look like they don't really want to be there. You know, they kind of sit in the chairs and they go off with this member. They don't know what to expect, right? They come here to the nation's capital. Some of them came from across the country. Some of them came from, you know, down the street. They don't know what to expect. And a lot of times we had girls who would come who literally lived in D.C. who had never set foot in the Capitol before. This huge building with the marble floors and all, you know, all of this. Right. They're nervous. And so, but when they come back in the afternoon, they're all chatty and excited and they're engaged because now they see possibility. So it's exposure to first you have to see the thing. To know that sometimes to know that it's there. Sometimes you know it's there, but you don't know how to get there. Yeah. Right. So sometimes it's just literally being exposed to someone who can sit you down and say, here's here's a path, not the path, but a path to get there. Um, so that's the first piece is exposure. The second piece is equipping people with the tools that they need to become effective advocates. Um, like I said, it's great for everybody to be able to come in and share their stories, but sometimes what you need, the most effective folks are the ones who can tell their story in five minutes and then be able to answer pointed questions and engage in dialogue. And sometimes that just takes practice. It's not, there's nothing, anyone can do it, but it just takes a little bit of practice and getting used to, you know, how you tell your story, understanding the legislative process. Um, you know, my generation grew up with Schoolhouse Rock and the, you know, I'm just a bill, you know, that type of thing. Um, 
and that was just an entree into how a bill becomes a law. It's obviously much more complicated than than that, but it's but it's figuring out where those pressure points are. Do you show up at a at a local hearing, whether it's at the federal level or at the at the state level? Do you show up and listen? Just sit in the back and listen to what the issues are, so that you are becoming educated with not only what the subject matter is, but how people talk about the subject matter. That's also really important. Um, and then it's empowering them to go out and use the tools that you've given them to share those stories. You know, and that's the thing that I think, particularly for young women um, who are underrepresented in some of these spaces and people of color, but also in particular women of color who are really underrepresented in these spaces. It's also sometimes, you know, um, making sure that they have the confidence to show up in those spaces and be heard. So I think for me, um, I, I feel like it's a, it's a personal responsibility for me to try to in, empower young women who may need that encouragement and give them that encouragement. They have the other stuff, but they may not have the confidence. And so that last bit of that last step is having somebody who says, yeah, go, you can do it. You've got this. I think that's important too. Most definitely. I really do appreciate that message. Um, Cheryl, it's, I think, uh, you know, giving people the, um, the representation and the encouragement to know that they can use their voice to make an impact and a difference and whatever lane they may be in is, is incredibly critical to, you know, seeing more diversity in politics and ultimately getting the progress that we're, we're in search of. Um, so we, I really do thank you for all of the insights that you've imparted on us and all of those who are listening today. I think your insights are invaluable and um, very unique. And um, again, I, I, one thing that I think I've taken away from a lot of what you've discussed today is forging these relationships and collaborations um, and really having the empathy, as you and Aaron had mentioned earlier, to um, be willing to reach across the aisle, talk to someone with different perspectives, um, you know, and hear the stories of the people that we're trying to um, encourage and lift up um, to be able to move forward. So uh, before we do end, we do have one question that we ask of all of our guests. Um, and as our podcast is um, based on trying to understand the impact of neighborhoods and where you come from um, and what your physical environment experience was like, um, you know, growing up, even to present day, we would like to know from you if you could, you know, just describe, you know, your neighborhood environment when you were growing up. What was it like? And um, how do you think it may have influenced um, your trajectory? Oh, wow. Um, I grew up in a suburban middle class neighborhood with, you know, backyard and riding bikes down the street. And, you know, I could walk to school. This was, you know, I'm going to date myself. This was the 80s. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I grew up in a safe neighborhood, right? Um, I never worried about where my next meal was coming from or whether the lights were going to be turned off. We, you know, my family wasn't rich by any stretch of the imagination, but we, you know, I didn't worry about those things. And I think one of the things that has kind of stuck with me is, and, and I think it's so easy to see in this, in this town in particular, because DC is so, is, you know, it's, it's so small is that you can go two blocks 
in another direction and the whole neighborhood changes, the demographics change, the income level has changed, right? And I think what is, what I took from that, from my background growing up, is growing up in a space where I didn't know that some of those things existed and then seeing them and thinking, well, wait a minute, why is it that I got to grow up in this neighborhood and another kid who's my age didn't get to grow up in that kind of environment in a safe space, right? And what is, that's the first question. And then the second question then becomes, well, what do I, what am I going to do about it? How am I going to, how, what is my role in trying to make sure that as many kids as possible get to grow up in a neighborhood where they don't have to worry about a hole in their roof or they don't have to worry about, you know, um, their families not having diapers, right? They don't have to worry about those things. Like how, how, what do I do? about that. And I've never been involved necessarily like with direct services in terms of my advocacy. I've always loved the idea of being able to do that on a, on a really big scale. And I think policy allows me to, public policy allows me to do it on a, on a larger scale. But I, but I do think that having, having had the opportunity to grow up in that kind of neighborhood and and initially taking some of those things for granted not even not even realizing the privilege that's associated with that um has informed a lot of like who I want to be as a person but also who who I want to be and what I want to do as a professional thank you so much for sharing that with us Cheryl um it's um, it makes a lot of sense because you are doing such impactful work and um, you're very inspired and awestruck by everything that you're doing to uplift the communities and really, um, uh, you know, uplift the um, the people who are in need of it. Um, so I, I'm certain that our audience has been um, graced with a lot of information and, uh, you know, your story is incredibly inspirational to say the least. So we thank you for joining us again, Cheryl. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Um, and we also thank all of our listeners for joining us on another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, which I'm certain that you should have, um, we would really appreciate it if you could give our podcast a five-star review and go follow us on Instagram at HNHN underscore podcast. And you can also check us out on our YouTube channel for the video recording of our conversations. So we hope that you'll join us next time to explore how healthy neighborhoods are the foundation to a healthy nation. 